Well, I'm uh, super glad to see everybody today. I know it's been a few weeks since I've been in here, so sorry about that. Hi, Joel. Good morning. And Joel, you've been uh, celebrating Yom Kippur, right? Oh, yeah. All yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I was aware of it and kind of followed it, but I figured it would celebrate it. I'm not going to build a shack out in the back of the palace here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, super, super thankful for each and every one of you. We've had a, a busy weekend here with our conference on suffering, so that was uh, a good time at least. Hopefully it was for anyone who was able to come. Uh, but yeah, let me start with uh, praying, and then um, I'm going to hear from you for a little bit. So dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning with open and hearts ready to receive your word, Lord. So teach us, continue to remind us of truth, Father encourage us through what Jesus has done for our sake. So I pray that as we take a look at salvation and all of those aspects involved in it, that it will grow our appreciation for your work, Lord, that it'll increase our desire for your return. And so I pray for each and every person here in the midst of their challenges and struggles and joys and disappointments, Lord, that uh, you will shine clearly and brightly. So thank you again for our time today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, since it's been, um, since I haven't been here for just a couple weeks, I'd like to make sure we're all on the same page. So, what's, uh, can you give me a little refreshment of the things you've talked about in the last couple weeks? Like either last Sunday or the Sunday before? Jesus. Jesus, good. <laughs> ah, glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always the right answer. Oh, almost always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So that was, so you were on um, kind of like, did you go through uh, like point B and C? Or point B at least? Of oh, the introduction. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and A. Okay. 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 Any questions that um, kind of you know that you maybe have as you went through that that you still haven't been answered or has you been thinking? Okay. No problem. So all right. Well, we will um, jump in there then. Uh, so you. You talked about election? Not yet. Okay. Talked about A. Okay. Yeah, so grace is, of course, one of the most important biblical terms that we have. And that favor toward God, uh, the favor of God towards sinners, as well as the power of God. So when you think about grace, think about it in terms of those two aspects it's God's favor and it's God's power. So he's giving us his power to change and to be forgiven and those kind of things. So we never, uh, you know, salvation begins with grace. Grace sustains us all the way through it, and it ends with grace. So we never leave grace behind. So then we will um, jump into uh, point B in your notes there, which is called election. So if we were doing this, um, let's see.
we call this sort of timeline our order of salvation. So it's not, not every part of this is necessarily chronological, uh, although some parts are. Some of these things happen at the very same moment. But if we're in order for us to maybe have a better picture of it, um, we, we kind of list them out in different places. But I'll, I'll kind of explain that. So, you know, we, we start here with election. Then we have calling. And the first calling would be a general calling. Then at some point, there's a specific calling. So in the general calling, you know, we'll, I think we'll talk about these, but um, that's where you just hear the gospel. Like at some point, maybe you went to a church and heard it. Maybe you had a friend that heard it, but it didn't necessarily have an impact on you. But you at least heard it. But then at some point, it was specific to your life. And you came to saving faith at that point. So you connect, you know, God worked in you and those dots were connected. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm headed toward hell. I need the Lord. Boom. So that's when it becomes specific for you at that moment of salvation there. Uh, then we have what we'll look at is called regeneration. And so that's where we're made alive. We were spiritually dead, but the Lord regenerates us or makes us alive. We have conversion. Um, so that's, that, that's our, it becomes our response to the gospel then. So we're responding by repenting. So faith and repentance. And again, like I'm saying, you see how it kind of makes sense that when I say that these are not necessarily chronological, but we put them on the timeline like this, these things are happening almost simultaneously. Like, so there's not, you know, it's not like, you're regenerated, and then two years later, there's a conversion. It's not like that. These are happening at the same time. But just so that we can talk about them in, a, in an order, I put them on the timeline in this order. Uh, then we have justification. And that's a legal verdict. We're declared not guilty. Ooh, I should have started back here. Michael, why don't you make me start back here? Well, we'll have to write a little bit. We'll have to go down here then. So then we have um, adoption. Where we're adopted into God's family. We're brought into his family. And by the way, I've got a pretty little chart. Next week I can print that off and give it to you. So you don't feel like you have to write that down. But it's got all that on that. 
Then we have um, sanctification. And that's where we're set apart for Christ, and that's where we're changed. We, uh, we grow into Christ-likeness. And then I'm going to have to run my chart back down here. We have uh, perseverance. So we're kept by God's power. We're preserved by God's power. And then we have glorification, which is what we're awaiting. And that's where God will finally remove all those traces of sin from us and give us a resurrected body. So that's kind of the, the order. I mean, this is the really the standard order that you know, at least a lot of people take when they talk about these different elements right here. So we're getting really getting into what I call like the bread and butter of our Christian walk, this, um, this doctrine of salvation. And so it's one of my favorite ones as, as we talk about all those different components that make up our salvation. So, you know, many people just look at salvation as just this, justification, like, I'm just declared righteous. Okay, there we go. That's salvation. And actually what we see is, whoa, we're missing a whole bunch of this, like adoption. How many of you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on adoption? Oh, it's been a while, isn't it? Uh-oh. Okay, when was the last time you heard a sermon on glorification? Maybe been a while on that. See, uh, perseverance. I know elements of that gets worked in. You know, definitely sanctification, that word may not be said, but a lot of what's being brought out is that. Our, we're being changed into Christ-likeness. Um, so you see, you know, there's, there's some of these things that you probably are familiar with, and then there's other ones that you're probably like, well, I'm not sure I know a lot about that one. So our hope is that as we go through this, you'll have a better understanding of what each one of these is, and that will increase your appreciation of God for his gift of salvation. So don't feel like at this point, you know, you have to understand all of these right now. That's what we're doing in here, right? So the, we'll just keep working through these. But we're going to start here with election. Uh, well, let me just ask you this. Any questions about this so far? Okay. So there in your notes, um, it says that election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So I realize that, that this is, uh, out of all of these, this would probably be the most controversial. Um, with some people, perseverance can be controversial, but certainly election is, can be very controversial. And so my role in here is simply to um, give you different how, how different people see it and then help you. We want to present each side fairly, right? So it's not like I'm pushing you to try to, like, you have to believe what I believe. I don't, it's not like that, right? I just want you to have a good understanding of, um, you know, different positions on this and uh, be able to ask any questions or things like that. So I want to acknowledge first first off that, there are, there are certainly plenty of people who have differences in this. And throughout church history, Christians have disagreed over this. So some people believe that what's... So no one would disagree that there's a biblical doctrine of election. 
Okay, nobody disagrees about that. It's just the meaning of it is where the differences lie. So with some people, they believe that with election, um, it's God is looking down the corridors of time and he sees ahead of time, because God is outside of time, but he would see those who one day would place their faith and trust in Jesus. And so those are the ones that God elects. Okay, so he's, he's just more looking, looking through time to see that ahead of time. But then there are others who would see it as your definition here, uh, where God is choosing um, before creation whom he chooses to save uh, and then passing over those he doesn't. So we'll get to a lot of, you know, we'll, we'll at least discuss a lot of objections and maybe challenges that people have with this doctrine right there. But I want you to know that um, I don't view this as like a first-level doctrine or even a second-level doctrine. So if we use this theological triage, so right here would be issues that would be gospel issues that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. We call those first-level, such as Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's, that's a first-level issue. Like, if, if you think that you can be saved through some other way than Jesus, you wouldn't fall into what, a Bibli what, the, Bibli what the Bible would say would be called a Christian. So, you know, this first-level doctrines would be salvation, uh, truths about Jesus, you know, those kind of things. So we, we have to hold these in order to be a Christian. The second level right here, those would be issues that would, would be why we have different denominations. So, for example, baptism. Well, some, some have different, or church government. Okay, so the Presbyterians have a different um, style of church government. You know, Methodists have a different style of church government. The uh, Mennonites, the, you know, different denominations. That's part of the reason why we have different denominations. Okay, so it's, it'd be issues like that. You know, how, how the church is set up. Um, baptism would be another big one there. But we're not saying that some people in here are Christians and some people aren't. So we're not saying that the Presbyterians are not Christians because they don't have the same understanding of the way the church is structured than we do, right? It's not that. It's just that we recognize we can't all be in the same church because of the nature of these differences. You can't have people who think the church should be set up like this completely different than the way other people think the church should be set up like this. That's not going to work in the church. You'd be butting heads constantly, right? So those are second-level doctrines right there. And then third-level would be uh, matters related to like eschatology or last things, or they would be related, I think, even to what we're talking about today with election, you know, predestination election. So they're all important, but you can still go to the same church with people who believe differently than we can. You know, we don't have to create a different church based off of that, right? So what I'm saying is, if you have a different view or understanding of, of this, then what's presented here, that's totally fine. You're totally welcome here, and we don't have to fight about it, right? We can, um, it, we can help sharpen each other, but I, don't want you, I wouldn't want anybody to, to feel like, oh, I don't think I'm going to be welcome at this church, or I don't think I can have a place here because I have a different view on you know, this particular topic right here.
So, okay. So there's some scriptural support um, there, and you'll you'll see that under point number two, scriptural support, right there. So Acts thirteen forty eight says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So I think that's on page three of your of your notes. So there that phrase has been appointed to eternal life. Now that's pointing back to this doctrine of election right here. Uh, Romans 8, 28 to 30, and verse 29 says... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So again, like I've been saying, the difference is in different positions is not, is there actually a biblical doctrine of election and predestination? Everybody agrees that there is. It's just the difference is on what does that mean? And I think it's, you know, we want to be clear, too, that when Paul writes these things, I know Paul didn't write Acts, but when Paul writes Ephesians, for example, or Romans, for example, he's not trying to cause controversy. So he's not putting these things in there, like in Ephesians or here in Romans, because he wants to blow up the church. You know, he's not like, oh, I think they're bored. You know, maybe I can just put something, put something very controversial in here and we'll see what they do. You know, it'll, it'll cause a big fuss. I'd, I'd like to see that. That's not why he's doing that. He's putting this in there because he wants to encourage believers. He wants them to know that their faith is secure. And so what's one of the ways that we know our faith is secure? It's going all the way back here. Like God, before the foundation of the world, determined to carry out his plan. And he determined a specific people in which he was going to do that. Nobody deserved it. He, he wasn't obligated to do it for anybody. But he chose, out of his gracious nature, to, to save certain people. Not because of anything they did, but because of his gracious nature. And so that gives believers confidence that if, if God has started this thing, you know, before the foundation of the world, then he can carry it out all the way. So it's meant to bring encouragement. Romans 9, uh, now that's certainly a very controversial passage. It um, definitely gets, gets people talking here. But again, that's not why Paul, uh, he wasn't trying to be controversial or divisive. Um, but he says there that he's talking about Jacob and Esau, and he said, For although the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Okay, so when, um, when Paul's going back to Jacob and Esau, what he's saying here is, is God determined that he was going to go through, the line, through Jacob, that he was going to save Jacob. But this was before Jacob or Esau had even been born yet. So they, you know, they hadn't done anything good or bad at that point. They didn't exist. But God had already predetermined that. And he said, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So again, it, it all goes back to God. It, it flows from his gracious nature, not from anything that we do. So in other words, God doesn't look ahead through the corridors of time and see that, okay, person A is, is going to grow up to be a very good person, very moral citizen, so I will determine to save them because person B, I can see that 
they're not. They're just going to be this lawbreaker. So I'm going to base my choice on what I know they'll do. That's, that's not how God works. He does this ahead of time before they've done anything good or bad because it's not about, it's not based on what they do. It's based on God. Then you have uh, Ephesians there, which mentions a couple places. He chose us. And then in verse 5, he predestined us. Now, again, that can bring a lot of misunderstandings and, and confusion. So let's work through these and then see what, what thoughts you have. So that first one there, election is not fatalistic or mechanic. So it can sound like if this is true, if, if election is true, then we're basically just a bunch of robots. We're puppets on a string, you know, and, and God's sort of pulling the strings and we our choices don't matter or have any meaning. And so we'd want to say that that's actually not true. Uh, we're not robots. We're not machines. We're not puppets. So God is using our real choices. We have real responsibility to accomplish his will. But humans have hardened their hearts and, un un and are unwilling to come to him so that they can have life. So we, do, we definitely have real choices. So page four there. Point B, and that's where um, you get into this different understanding of what election is. So some people believe that what election is is simply God's foreknowledge. So knowing, knowing the future ahead of time of our faith. So that's, that's the big divide, you know, is election that, that God just knows what we'll do way before it happens, or did God already choose these things and, and determine to have this past come to pass? You know, what, which one of those? And, you know, so here we can see that um, in eternity past, God didn't pre-screen the movie of human history. So make note of all who would come to him and then decide to choose them. So I don't believe that, it, that that's how it works. Like God just looks ahead in time, sees who will come to faith in him, and then makes choices based off of that. So I believe that the other way, that God predetermines who he will set his grace on. Because the, the ch sort of the challenge is, um, e even if this is true, Let's just hypothetically say that that was true, that God just looks down the corridors of time and looks at person A and says, they will come to faith in me, and person B will not, so I'm going to choose person A. That actually locks them in. It actually doesn't help escape the tension because person A at the last second can't suddenly decide, you know what, I'm not going to come to faith in Christ. Because then what would that do with God? Would he be surprised by that? Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Well, no, no, it wouldn't work like that. So that choice, like even if that was true, they in a sense would be locked in to whatever that was. You know, so one of the objections against election is it's not fair. You know, it, it sounds like person B doesn't have a choice. Like, what if they really wanted to come to faith in Christ, but God just didn't elect them? Like, that is so unfair. So that's not how it works. We'll get to that. But even, so if you take this approach or this idea that God's just looking ahead in time, you actually still have that tension. So person B, 
They can't at the last minute either suddenly change their mind and say, you know what, I'm going to come to faith in Christ. Because again, if they did, that would mean that God would be surprised by that. Like he didn't see that one coming. So you see that there's a tension that you can't escape. And so what people do to try to get out of that tension is they say then, okay, okay, well, we recognize, you know, that that's that's not going to work. So what we're going to say then is that God actually doesn't know. So that's that's kind of the way out of it, right? So if God doesn't know what people are going to do, it one tries to get God off the hook, and secondly, it's trying to just really preserve this idea that we can choose to do whatever we want. But you recognize the problem with that, don't you? If God doesn't actually know what people are going to do, ooh, how do we know that He can carry out His plan and His purposes? How do we know that something's not going to catch him by surprise? You know, there's a lot of big red flags right there. So I don't think we want to go down that route. But that's what we would call more of an open theism. I don't think that that's something any of you probably struggle with, but it's a view out there. They're they're just trying to escape that tension. So that, that would, you know, the answers to the objections in number four... The first one is election means that we don't have a choice in whether or not we accept Christ. So that that would be the objection. But our response would be, we all have real choices, but they're connected to our desires. So if we desire evil, we won't choose God, and, and we'll be fine with that. And God will never turn away anyone who wants to come to Him. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. That God is welcoming. Anybody that comes, God will, God will take. So people who don't want God won't come to God. So never will somebody get to the end of their life and die and stand before God and be able to say, God, I really wanted to come to faith in you. I really wanted to follow you, but you didn't let me. You didn't choose me. That will never, ever happen. So if someone has that desire to follow God, to come to faith in Him, what that shows is God is working in them. God has chosen them. So does that make sense? Okay, well, I'll let more questions at the end here. Um, But it relates to point number B. So some people would again respond and say, election means that unbelievers never had a chance to believe. And the response would be, um, again, whether we reject God and, and Christ, we're, we're still responsible for our own decision. So God doesn't put that back on Him. It, it's the, the Bible always puts that back on the person, not on a decree by God. So God holds people responsible for their choices. He doesn't give them you know, the option to get off the hook by saying, well, God, it's your fault. You know, you just didn't allow me to do this, so I can use that as an excuse. The weight of responsibility is always put back on us, on our choices. So here in John eight forty three to 44, Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I am doing? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there, because there is no truth in him. Whoever speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So Jesus, Jesus is pointing out this problem that some of the people can't hear Jesus, like not physically. The sound waves are bouncing around in their ear. Their brain is processing it. They can understand the sentences. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about obeying it. And so Jesus is answering the question, why, are not, why aren't some people obeying what I say? And his answer is, it's because they can't. They still belong to the devil. They still have their old nature. And they're not able to receive that spiritual truth and connect it to their life and their situation. But notice, Jesus doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't try to get um, put, it, put it back on God and say, well, I know it's not your fault that you can't understand. You know, if, if the Lord just would have opened up your heart and saved you, you know, so it's obviously God's fault. That's not what Jesus does. The responsibility still lies on them. So that, that is just a tension that we have when it comes to the Bible. Like God, it, you know, we need God's grace. We can't do it apart from Him. But yet, we're still responsible for those choices. It's still our responsibility. Like when we get to repentance, you'll see the same thing. Repentance is a gift of God, but it's also our responsibility. And if you're asking me, how do those two things work together? How can they both be true? I don't know, but they are. <laughs> so I just know that we have real choices to make and we're responsible for those, but it's God who has to enable us. And in some way that I can't even fathom or imagine, that the two things are just true together. And it's also important to see that even if given you know, a chance, the unbeliever wouldn't take it. So Romans 121 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so there's a, you know, a family member that I know, and he, he will constantly come back and just say, well, I would believe in God if I just had more information. You know, if God just made, revealed himself more clearly, then I would believe. And on the surface, that can kind of seem plausible. Like, oh, well maybe, boy, I wonder why God just hasn't revealed himself more clearly to people. You know, I don't know what the deal is. But you kind of start fleshing that out. Like, okay, tell me a little bit about more of that. Like, what, what actually would that take? You know, like this divine appearance of God right before you um, speaking, is, is that what it'll take? And you kind of figure out pretty soon that they don't really mean that. There's almost nothing that would convince them. You know, they might blame that on uh, a dream or uh, an interaction with some medicine or something like else, right? It's like, even though they say that, if I just had more information, if I just, if God just revealed himself more clearly, they don't actually mean that. And so what Romans points out is that actually God has revealed himself clearly. He's done that through two ways, through nature. So, you know, I'm sure many of you today, we're driving here and it's a bright sunny day. How many of you could look at the sun and just, you know, be fine with that? Yeah, Joe's like, why would you do that? You know, you'll blind yourself. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, but thinking through that, like the fact that there's a sun that we're in this perfect relationship with in, in the sense of we're not too close and we're not too far away. Life is sustained. How does that work? Did that really happen by chance? 
And the fact that our bodies work the way they do with all the intricacies and, and details and things like that, that, that was just chance? No, so God's handiwork is, is all over the place. And then secondly, his conscience. He's given us a conscience to know right from wrong. So those two things are God's evidence to, we call that general revelation, God revealing himself to everybody that he exists. And so what Romans says is that um, it's not, uh, if you keep reading here in Romans, they've rejected that. So they've rejected the truth. So it's not that they didn't have enough evidence. That's not the problem. The problem is their rejection of the truth. So, so none of the, you know, it's not, again, if I could summarize that, it's the, the problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is what we do with the evidence. A third objection, her third concern, letter C on page five, is that election is unfair. So it doesn't seem fair that God would determine to save some and not others. But if we think through that, you know, wh- how do we understand this whole idea of fairness anyway? So if God never sent his son to die on the cross, would he still be right in sending everyone to hell? What are your thoughts? When is God wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would just say that... Um, and I've told this to a church member before um, at the main church I attend. Um, she's going through a really rough time, and her husband fell, broke his vertebrae and a couple ribs, but he keeps bouncing back. And I told her, well, it's kind of like two things when, time is, when times are hard for you. One is... Basically, God's not done with you yet. Two, whenever I throw in the towel and I just want to give up, even if it's really, really hard and I've had hardships like you wouldn't believe, I'm blessed beyond measure that it's not worse. Other people have it worse than me. But with that being said, whenever I want to throw in the towel, God sometimes just throws it back at me. And he's like, he's telling mm-hmm. me, wipe your tears mm-hmm. because I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on me. We're, we're not done yet. We're almost there. Keep going. And sometimes if, sometimes I can get a little stubborn, but I'm not at fault of that. I mean, I know there's other people that can be that way. I've met some. And um, my, when my stubbornness kicks in, it's like, I just want to throw that towel. But then he's like, okay. I need to get your attention a lot more. So sometimes it's like he's throwing a lot of the, it's like he's throwing a hundred towels back in my face saying, no, keep going. You're not listening. And then it's like, okay, God, you got my attention. I'm listening. (laughs) So I just find that amazing how, Mm -hmm. how God can do that to get, I mean, and he, it's not, 
it's like a parent. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's doing it to be mean. He's just doing that because he's always had, he's always had my back. So. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer. That was well said. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Mm-hmm. So we we think of sin and how it deserves um, eternal punishment, and so. I, th- I believe we'd all say that that would not be unfair of God to banish people to hell. So he's not obligated to give grace to anybody. It's a free gift. And so if he, you know, we, we kind of operate in the sense of like equal protection for all, like everybody should should get the same thing. But God's not bound by anything like that. He's not, uh, nothing obligates him to give this saving grace to every single person here. It's a gift. It's not a. It's not a reward for works. It's not a something he's he's obligated to do. So the, you know, another question might be, um, well, doesn't the Bible teach that God wants everyone to be saved? And there's a few passages there that that talk about that. My brother got saved. Mm-hmm. He got baptized by my brother-in-law. Wow, neat. Good. Recently, maybe. No, but he 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 you know, you have a more technical definition there right there, but but I would just summarize it up like this. It's like, yes, absolutely. God does have a genuine desire for all to come to faith in Him. That's 100% true. But He also has a, a desire to uh, to save some. So they're, they're both true. It's just like an ocean. You can have, you know, an ocean's so big, you can have a storm in one place and you can have a sunny place place in another place, right? You can have both of those things at the same time. And so, absolutely, God loves humanity. You know, John 3, 16, God loves the world. That is 100% true. And he also desires that, um, and he also determines that some will come to faith in him. So, we don't have to choose between the two of them. They're, they're both true. Okay. Uh, But I want to just stop here for a minute and see maybe what kind of concerns you have or questions you have or, uh, you know, if something didn't make sense. Back to anything we've talked about up until now. God does have emotions. He does care because he was born the son of man. Mm-hmm. So he has the people who thinks, oh, well, he don't, um, he, he doesn't have anger. He doesn't have sorrow. He doesn't have any of these feelings or any feelings at all. He, all he has is love and grace. It's like, it's like, no, you're forgetting he was the son of man. So he does 
he does have those. So he understands, he understands whatever emotions you have and he gets that you're not perfect because that's not how he designed it. Mm -hmm. That's why whenever someone says something to me, I tell them, well, you know what? I'll gladly admit I'm not perfect. I'll admit that any day because for, and if you want perfection on me, that's not going to come from me. That's going to come from God because God's the only one that's perfect. But it's just a comforting to know that he, he did have human emotions. He was born the son of man before his crucifixion and his resurrection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yesterday in one of my talks was on uh, Jesus and his humanity and talking about emotions and how can we understand our emotions? Well, we look to Jesus and see his perfect emotions. So that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, all right. Well, I just, and maybe one final thing when it comes to, um, you know, just the doctrine of election, but how do we use it? You know, what, what do we do with it? So maybe some of you are still wrestling with this in your mind. Maybe others of you are, con you know, convinced one way or the other. Um, but, you know, we, we always want to use a doctrine like this very carefully. We, we are not trying to use it to put an obstacle to anyone coming to faith in Christ. So that could be one wrong way of using it. Uh, in the past, there have been some who went over, and we call it hyper, and so they really weren't about missions or evangelism because they, they just kind of fell into the trap of, well, if election is true, then why do we have to do anything? I mean, God will send the mission. You know, God will take care of the people in China or India or, or wherever the case is. We can just stay right here. And that's not the way it works either. It doesn't, you know, God uses human means to, uh, to carry out the gospel here. So we don't want to fall into that trap of, of just this fatalism or determinism. Uh, but I would say also, w just one of the other things, and I don't really have concerns about this group, but you know, sometimes when people are learning a, a new doctrine, they get very excited about it, and we call it a cage stage, and they just want to go tell everybody, and they want everybody to know that this is really important, this is why you should believe that. And unfortunately, it's usually coupled with maybe, you know, lack of maturity in some cases, or at least uh, this over this overzealousness can can cause some some impacts. So we don't you, know, you just have to be very careful um, with that. So we want to hold the truth. Uh, we we believe that there's a, a benefit of sharpening each other and learning from each other. So I would just say, you know, if you're talking with somebody who believes differently with you on this perspective, we want to understand their position fairly. Don't misrepresent them. We call that making a straw person. So like, oh, Joel, you believe, well, you believe that. When Joel's like, no, I never said that at all, <laughs> right? Because I didn't listen to you. I didn't make sure I really understood what you believed well. So it's really important that we really listen to people, understand where they're coming from, and then make sure that, you know, when we're responding to that, go back to the word, make sure that we're correct on it, and uh, accurately represent them. And at the end of the day, we can disagree well. We don't have to separate. We don't have to be enemies. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's where that's where we have election here. Um, and, and that's where it's that's where our doctrine of salvation begins. 
And then we go to calling. So letter C on page five, calling. So you see on your notes, and then we'll get into page six right there, effective calling or effectual calling, and then the gospel call. So there's different ways of, maybe two different ways of naming those two things, and, and that's fine. Either way is fine. You could, you could call this one, um, you could call this one the effectual call, you could, uh, but one is more of a general, the other is more of a specific, or I like effectual. Um, so if we look at that first one there, so effective calling, that's an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way they respond to saving faith. So that's where I put it right here. I call it specific calling or effectual calling. It has an effect. It has a result. You know, and, and this one, it's still like God's word always goes forth. It always, always, um, con it always carries out what God intended for it to do. But again, just think back to your testimony and how you came to faith in Christ. Did any of you come to Christ or did, it, did God save any of you the very first time, very first time you ever heard the gospel message? it a lot growing up I was brought in a Christian based home and I heard of it all I mean quite a bit and my parents was firm believers in raising us in that way and so as I got older and I was in high school at the time I was only a teenager I had so many distractions so many so many things and I'm like that was going wrong and I'm like, okay, I just, I just didn't know what to do at the time and I just thought about it more and it's like, well, I think maybe, well, I can't do this alone. I'm gonna need a, some help and a higher power. So I decided one day at church camp um, and my dad was with me I made the decision to be baptized in the lake at a church camp. And the day before I got baptized, I was crying uncontrollably. But it wasn't because I was sad, it's because I was preparing myself. And I felt some spiritual connection. And the day when I woke up to be baptized, it's like, everything was like quiet and still and what beautiful way than to be baptized in god's cathedral his nature that he created and i it's i thought to myself the angels must be singing a happy day up there they must be very happy and when I hit that water and came out of the water, it's like, to me, it's like as almost as if I was put to death and I was reborn again, I risen out of a grave. And 
to this day, I tell people, you know, even though I mess up or even though I'm mad or whatever the case may be, I think being baptized was the best decision I ever made because I could have gone so far in anything without him. So I was baptized as a teenager during high school at church camp. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, we, we love hearing testimonies of God's work. Every, every single testimony is a miracle. It's not, you know, one better than the other. It's, this is a work of God to take that dead heart and make it alive again. So, yeah, I just encourage you. I'd, we'd love to hear your stories and um, how God has done that in your life. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. for, my, for me, even for, for my father, people got baptized. I was 17 at the time. And then I got baptized right in the next room over there. Oh. And even then you were part of summers. Wonderful. And even being in, in, in before, I, I did prepare and I saw the light of God somehow. Mm-hmm. And he told me to go for it, get baptized. Yeah. And I did. I did it with my father. Good. And one more thing. One more thing. Because I love my dad. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah, very helpful. So uh, both of these things emphasize the importance of the gospel call. So let's talk about um, letter two here, and, and it says the gospel call. This speaks of the external proclamation of the saving message of the gospel. So, you know, I ask you the question, did anybody, did God save any of you the very first time you heard the gospel? And I don't think anybody raised their hand, right? So that, that you know, you heard over the years, maybe it was once, maybe it was Many, many times you heard the gospel call. And then at some point, God worked in you. So, so God um, summoned you to himself in a way that you responded in saving faith. And that's what we call this effectual call or this specific calling. So that's why it's so important for us to uh, remember our role in the gospel call. So Romans 10:14 asks this great question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So Paul's asking a bunch of rhetorical questions right there, meaning the answer is implied. Well, well they can't. They won't. If, if, they, uh, if they haven't believed in him yet, then um, how are they going to call on him? Why would they call on him? And he says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Again, well, they won't. If they haven't heard of him, then how are they going to believe? And how will they hear without a preacher? So Paul's point is, you know, God is using human agency in this in the proclamation of the gospel right there. So as you think about Romans 10, 14, how should this motivate us to proclaim the gospel? <coughs> or the general call? You know, how should that motivate us to proclaim the gospel? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. I've often said we're in sales for God. <laughs> and the salesman makes you want what he has to offer. So are you doing ways, things, ways that people want what you have to offer, want what you have? Mm-hmm. 
That's simply the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. Good. You know, yeah, they have to read it, they have to hear it. But many are going to have to see it first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, this is one of the aspects that why election is so important because. If it's God's work, if it's God the one that's doing it, it's not based on my performance. So it's not like I've got to nail the script right. You know, I've got to get everything right. Oh, man, you just, you know, Michael, you just didn't respond in faith. So I better go back and practice it again. Like maybe if I just said it a little bit better next time, you, you would might be able to respond. And it like takes that aspect out of the equation. It's, it's not us. That doesn't mean that we can just be like, oh, I don't have to care about, like, it doesn't matter if I know what the gospel is at all. I can be super confusing. Of course, we should care and we should try to have a really good understanding to present it in a very clear way. But at the end of the day, it's not resting on our shoulders, you know, to make sure to guarantee that that person comes to faith in Christ. It's a work of God. So I can have that weight lifted off. And I can trust God in it. So it, it can give me confidence and boldness as maybe as you talk to a family member, you know, a, a child or uh, a parent or a sibling or a friend or a coworker of knowing that it's not all on you to do this. This is God's work. He can just use you as the, the, the vessel in which to convey that. But yeah, it does, does give us great emphasis here on evangelism, on the proclamation of the gospel. And so uh, just as just by way of encouragement for us all, like, can we look for opportunities, you know, in the sphere of people that you're around to, to be able to do that? Because we don't know. It's God's not revealed to us at what point it goes from here to here. Right. We don't have that insight. Maybe it's the fifth conversation you have with them that God works in them. Maybe it's the hundredth. <laughs> Maybe it's the second. I don't know. But. Without this, you know, we, we need this uh, and before we get to here. So back to, back to this one here, this specific calling. Um, you see a couple passages there. So John, under number one, John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus makes it very clear right there that no one can come to Christ unless the Father is drawing him. And those who do come, Jesus will raise up on the last day. So you see this whole process right here being completed because of, because of God's work. He's not stopping. God's not losing somebody along the way here. And, and that's, again, meant to be an encouragement for us. And then uh, Acts 16, 14, a woman from Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So none of us, I, don't, I couldn't say it any better than that. <laughs> couldn't say it any more clearly than that. Paul is there. He's being faithful. Uh, and guess what the Lord does? Opens her heart. So she responds. Right? So that's that specific calling right there. So you see... Um, Number three, there on page six, relevance to salvation. So although the invisible hand of God is ultimately responsible for drawing us to the Savior, he chooses to use an external gospel call to impact our emotions, our intellect, and our will so that we respond with faith and repentance. So God doesn't bypass our will, our emotions, our intellect. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just like 
somehow zap us. And so we're thinking, you know, we're saved, but then we're like, I hate God. I don't want anything to do with him. You know, that's, that's not how it works. For us, from our aspect of it is we are making choices. We are wanting to do this and, and we are headed toward him. But the, you know, behind the scenes, this invisible work is, is God is tend- he's preparing the soil. He's changing the heart. He's molding and shaping those desires to orient toward him. So, you know, both of those components are true. God's invisible work and our willing responses. So, I'd say, I would say, though, he, he does go against our will in one sense. Uh huh. Right? Yep. We are, you know, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says that you are of your father, the devil, and it is your, um, you know, it's in their nature to do his will. Mm-hmm. And so we are um, bound by our natures to act in our will is led by our nature so if we're a sinful unbelieving nature that is the uh, the limitations of our will mm-hmm. you know and that's why the scriptures talk about us being spiritually dead we're not able to do anything of spiritual good because that is not within our wheelhouse it's not in our really but at some point god changes our nature so that we have a new will and new desires that we act on so yeah and that like you said that balance that god doesn't go against our will but he does change our will. Because mm-hmm. if he didn't change my will, I would never, yeah. ever want to respond to his call. Yep. Like you said, the Lydia opening up her heart. Mm-hmm. If God hadn't done that, she never would have yep. answered the call. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's what I meant by that. In in the sense of like we're we're not getting to the you know we're we're not like saying uh, we're not becoming a, a child of God, but yet simultaneously hating God and wanting nothing to do with him. So God has been the one that's giving us that new will, that new heart, those things. So that from our perspective, it feels like it, it uh, you know, we're, we're involved from our perspective. You know, we can see that our desires have been changed, but yeah, like Tyson said, 100% a work of God, because otherwise we would never want that. So what questions do you have, you know, related to these two things right here, whether general calling or specific calling? Yeah, very nice. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we come back next week, Lord willing, we will um, begin our focus in these two areas right here, regeneration and conversion. And so, yeah, we'll be um, you know picking picking up your notes on page six, and then. Uh, going through those things. Not sure if we'll have make it to justification, but we'll see. So, Lord willing, uh, we will see you next Sunday. Yes? Did you say you were going to make a little neat little graph or something for us? Did I hear that? That's right. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got one that I will print off and have for a handout. So, it shows this, we call it, you know, the Latin is ordo salutis, the order of salvation right there, and start at the bottom, and you can work your way up. So, yep, I'll have that for you next time. Thank you.